Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. The second part of this little series within our series, The Compassionate Provision of Christ, part 2 today. And uh, we're going to begin reading in verse 11. If you will, follow along with me. You can follow on the screen or in, in an app or on your, in your Bible as well. And the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. And sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. And they had forgotten to take bread, and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Do you, not, do you, do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand? How many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, Twelve. And when I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. He was saying to them, do you not yet understand? Last week I said that if we are to be Christ's disciples, he gives us what we need to serve others. But it's meaningless to have such tools at our disposal if we don't have the compassion of Christ for those who are lost. And along with Christ's compassion, what we see in this text today is the vision of Christ. We see that we must have his focus. If we're Christ's disciples with a hope to exhibit the compassion of Christ, we must also have the focus of Christ. I'll say that again. That's the main thing. If you take nothing away, as you remember, I've taken away the, the points so we can just read from the text and understand the text. But if there's one thing you do take away from this message, I hope it's this. If we are Christ's disciples with a hope to exhibit the compassion of Christ, we must have the focus of Christ. We're continuing through this uh, Gospel of Mark and through the the series within a series and the compassionate provision of Christ, like I said. And we're going to close this out next week in part three. But as for now, we, we look at today's text. We look at what's going on between Jesus, the Pharisees, and the disciples. And what I found in my research is this scripture is often twisted and contorted and and taken to mean something that it doesn't mean. If you listen to some other pastors or preachers with this text, they they don't stay true to what it's really about, but they often will make it about themselves or about their church or so on and so forth. And there's a time and a place for application, but, but they miss the meaning. And it might make for a better speech, but it makes a flawed sermon. It's full of Proof texts and eisegesis. And if you don't know what those words are, ask someone who was coming to the class this past spring on Wednesday nights. They're, they're very well familiar with the terms. If we aren't careful as we navigate through this text, we may lose our focus like the disciples did and become concerned over the things that don't matter rather than the things that should matter. And this morning, we have to constantly keep in check as we follow Christ, ensuring that our eyes are truly on Him, our focus is on Him as we follow after Him. We must understand who Jesus is. 
and what he's saying to his disciples here. Now, I do want to take a step aside for just a second. This past week, you know, we had the Q&A, and we had some questions come in kind of late, and um, they didn't get asked Wednesday night, and so that's fine. We'll save them for next time maybe, but someone asked this question, and it's kind of related to another question I've been asked several times throughout the past few years. Uh, typically it goes something like, why don't we see more people baptized in the Holy Spirit? Why don't we see more miracles? Why don't we see these things happening like they happened in the book of Acts? And, and I've struggled with that question myself over the past few years. And it's, I think it was asked to me within the first couple of months of me being in Lisbon. And it's been sitting in the back of my brain like an itch I couldn't scratch. Because why don't we see these things? Why don't we experience these things? Why don't they happen as commonly as we see, the ha- see them happen in the book of Acts. Now, we, we know miracles still happen today. We've seen them happen within our own sanctuary. In fact, Craig Keener recently published a book documenting, I think it was over 500 documented miracles, people with limbs that have grown back, vision that has been restored, people who have been mute and are now able to talk, people who are deaf and can now hear, things like that, just from the last decade alone. And I stand by my statement. You've, many of you have heard me say that The greatest miracle is what we see when a heart is changed, the heart of stone that becomes the malleable, softened heart of a a disciple of Christ. I believe that is the greatest, purest, truest miracle we'll ever see. But why don't we see more limbs growing and more dead rising and more blind seeing? Why are we not seeing a move of the Holy Spirit? And Again, I've wrestled with this, and since Wednesday, I just prayed about this. Like, what, what is this? What's... Why don't we experience that stuff? For a Pentecostal preacher, I can tell you that is very frustrating. And when, uh, Friday, I was reading through some books, and something an author said, it was just like a switch flipped open, and, and the Holy Spirit spoke. And So one of the points he made was, why would God give us power to evangelize if we're not going to evangelize? Why would God give it to us if we're not going to do anything with it. He said the reason so many churches don't experience a move of the Holy Spirit is is because the church is not doing anything dangerous enough to require the Holy Spirit. Why would God give us power to lay hands on the sick if all we're going to do is sit on our hands? I imagine God is saying, so I would give you healings, but what are you doing with the documented healings I've already given you? What are you doing with the word that I've already given you? If I give you the ability to heal someone, then what? It gets documented, and that document gathers more dust than your Bible does. What do you do with the testimony of what God's already done in your life? Where's the passion? Where's the the desire to see people one to Christ? What are we doing with what He has given us? Why should we dare ask for more? If we want to have a move of the Holy Spirit, our focus must be the same as the disciples. And when you read the book of Acts, you see their focus was Christ. Christ crucified, Christ risen, Christ preached, Christ shared, Christ lived. Because the Holy Spirit is about bringing people to Jesus Christ. And if we aren't about that too, that's not our vision and we do not deserve a move of the Holy Spirit. So the truth is, you want to know why we don't see those things? Why we don't experience those things? What are we doing? What are we doing with what he's already given us? 
So we dive into the message this morning. And to begin in our text, we have to understand that our focus must be on who Christ truly is, not who we want Him to be. This past week, we've seen a lot of folks arguing over certain things and and twisting who Christ truly is. And honestly, I, I rejoice. The drums of Molech went silent this week, and I couldn't be happier. And I'm sure many of you can agree with that. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, see me after service. But we read in the text, verse 11, The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. You understand, Jesus has been in Gentile territory, and the Pharisees have been waiting on him to return to his home base, right? We saw this last week. He's come home, and they're licking their chops, waiting. They want another round of debate, because they've got a plan. They know what they're going to do. They're going to, they swagger up to the beach, I imagine, and as soon as the the boat hits the shore, and he's getting off the boat, they're ready. They're cracking their knuckles they're they're ready for him they have this whole trap set now if you remember the last time jesus interacted with the scribes and the pharisees he obliterated the legalism they had created surrounding their washing of their hands in in mark 7 and he likely humiliated them somewhat in the process their oral traditions were no match for his knowledge of the law so now they come up and they want another round they want they think they're they're set for another fight They don't want to debate logic. They don't want to debate philosophy, or they definitely don't want to touch the law. They come to Jesus much in the same way the devil did. In fact, the word Mark uses for testing here, if you pay attention in his gospel, he only reserves it for two groups of people, the Pharisees and Satan himself. When Satan tempted Jesus back in Mark 1.13, it's the word uh, parizo. And it means he tempted or tested in order to trap. That's their intention here. They have a plan and they're going to execute it. So they come to Jesus and they demand a sign. Not just any sign. They want, in essence, what they're asking is for an Elijah on Mount Carmel type of experience. They want fire from heaven or they want him to do something towards heaven. They want something performed. From God to God, either Jesus is going to launch himself up like a rocket ship or he's going to call down a meteorite type of thing. Jesus claims he's been Lord of the Sabbath. They want him to confirm it. If you're really who you say you are, this is going to confirm it to us. This will explain where your power truly comes from if you're being honest. But they have an idea, they believe, They think they know where Jesus' power truly comes from. They accuse him of getting his power from the devil back in chapter 3. So they're coming to him and they're basically saying to him, if you really are who you say you are, then prove it. Show us a sign. And here we see the brilliance of Mark. Who else does that sound like? Sounds like Satan himself. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread, back in Luke 4, verse 3. So we see Mark has chosen his words rightly. Many Jewish people of this era, by the way, they were looking for God's intervention in history. If you recall, they believed, the Pharisees had taught, that if they were able to just follow the law just right, be just perfect, 
then God would come in and intervene and throw off the reign of Rome and he would be able to, to set everything right. And Second Temple literature confirms this, that when the Messiah came, they believed that when he finally came, he would confirm himself with great miraculous signs and a heavenly sign. Some show of power that confirmed that God was still on the side of Israel, much like they'd witnessed or their ancestors had witnessed as they fled Egypt when God had performed plagues and and split the Red Sea. And we'll unpack that a little bit as we go. But where in Jesus' life do we see a great heavenly miracle take place? Where do we see the sign they're demanding? It's not in his life, but in his death. As he's being mocked by the same scribes, these Pharisees, the chief priests, the day he's crucified, Mark tells us they get their sign. And when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. That's Mark 15, 33. By the way, this darkness is recorded all over the world, as far east as Japan, as far west as the westernmost reaches of Greece. They, any civilization that had a written language, they have found evidence of a great darkness that covered the earth during this time. And it wasn't during the time of a full moon. That This is during Passover. So it's not some eclipse. This is a heavenly miracle. The whole earth covered in darkness. So the Pharisees will have their sign. But it'll be much later than their demand this day. Unless we forget, their, their demand's not from a sincere heart anyway. They're only asking in order to trap him. Were there some sort of sign that Jesus did perform at this time, it would not be something that would lead them to worship. It would only further harden their hearts against him. And Jesus knows this. That's why he replies in the way he does. And sighing deeply in his spirit, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. We have to remember in the flow of this story, in the context of this story, asking for a sign is very similar to what the disciples have just done during the feeding of the 4,000. If you recall, Jesus implied the disciples should begin feeding the crowd. He tells them, you, you feed them. And the disciples' response in a sense, and I'm paraphrasing, well, Jesus, why don't you do it? Or will you not feed the Gentiles as you fed the Jews? But they should have known. They, they've been with Jesus. They should have a grasp of who he is. And we know because we've read the book that they're hard-hearted. But if they recalled anything from the Old Testament, if they truly believed he was the Messiah, the Christ, or the root and shoot of Jesse, as he's sometimes called, then it would be in that day, this is Isaiah 11.10, that the nations, plural, not just Israel, will seek the root of Jesse, who will stand as a standard for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Later in Isaiah, he writes, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, and whom my soul is well pleased. I've put my spirit upon him. He'll bring forth justice to the nations. If they understood, if they had the focus of Christ, they would get the fact that he was about the Gentiles. And there never would have been a question asked. There never would have been, well, Jesus, why don't you feed them? So we can understand Jesus' frustration with the disciples that we see in this text, we can also understand his frustration with the Pharisees. But they still want this confirmation. The disciples still want some kind of confirmation, just like those who opposed him. This is why he sighs deeply. It's the Greek word anastanizos. And it, it's a groan of weariness or despair. It's not out of anger. 
The disciples had hard hearts that had caused them to be unable to focus on Christ as he was, as they should see him, his true nature. But for the, for the Pharisees, they were spiritually blind. They, they didn't have just a bad focus. They couldn't see anything. Now you have to remember, the Pharisees have also seen Jesus heal diseases, restore lives, cast out demons, do the impossible. And yet in their minds, as twisted as it was, they convinced themselves he did this under the power of Satan, under the power of the devil. They'd seen enough, they should, being the religious elite, they should have been the ones who reached the best possible conclusion that he was the Messiah. But in their hardened hearts, they refused to believe it. So Jesus refuses their request. In fact, if he were to give in and and do anything like they were requesting, he would have contradicted himself. He'd already warned the disciples about doing this very thing. He said, do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Jesus is not going to waste another moment, at least in this text. He's not going to waste another moment with these Pharisees. He's not giving them a sign. He's not going to give a sign to anyone. He says, truly I say to you. And this actually is a shortened phrase from in the Greek of the Hebrew phrase, if I do such a thing, may I die. In other words, the harshest way Jesus can say something, he's saying it. He's telling them, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. You've seen enough. Of course, the ultimate sign will be when he has his broken body placed upon a cross, and they are still going to deny him. They are still going to mock him. This is what people do, after all. We've seen this story play out many times in Scripture. We see it throughout human history. We see it in the church. God does something miraculous, and we say, we'll top that. Do something better. Do something bigger, as if he's some kind of magician for our entertainment. Or worse, we try to recreate it. Someone once said, it's a great thing Balaam's donkey didn't happen in the 20th century, or we'd have a donkey on the stage every Sunday, right? Some churches still do, but I'll leave that there. If we aren't careful, we miss something Mark is painting for us here. The testing of Jesus is no different than what Israel had put God through, had put Moses through at the waters of Meribah in Exodus 17. We should be aware of the stories retelling in Psalm 95, so just tuck that away, write that in your notes, Psalm 95. Just keep that in mind for a moment, and we're going to revisit that story. You see, the people had just left Egypt. Like I said, they'd witnessed miracle after miracle, plague after plague, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, and they've had their first sense of freedom. And what was it, 400 years? And they get to the Red Sea, and God, who is master over time, reality, space, all these things, what's he do? He parts the Red Sea, and they walk across on dry land. And yet they get to the waters of Meribah, the place of Meribah, Masa, whatever, it's called both names. And Scripture tells us, Exodus 17, 2, Therefore the people contended with Moses, give us water that we may drink, because they didn't have anything. It ran out of their supplies. And Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you test the Lord? LSB says, Why do you test Yahweh? Moses goes on, he prays, and he says, God, if you don't do something, they're going to kill me. 
It's in Exodus 17.4. And the truth is, if you study that, and you study the, re- the repetitions of that story, the different recounts of Moses that he gives, he mentions it a few times in Deuteronomy, the only reason Israel wants to stone Moses, the only reason they are going to kill Moses is because they can't get their hands on God himself. They will stone God by proxy. They'll stone his servant, his prophet. What do you think the Pharisees want to do in Jesus' time? Soon they will want to stone the prophet. They will try to stone God. Soon in his timeline, you can read about that in John 8, 58 and 59. So Jesus says, I'm not going to give these people a, a sign because he knows what they're truly doing. No sign will be given to this generation. Now that's where we pick up in Psalm 95. If you remember, it says, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the days of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tried me, they tested me, though they had seen my work. Well, that sounds really familiar, doesn't it? For 40 years, I loathed that generation, God says. You see, the demand for a sign, Jesus says, no, 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 no. We've played this game before, and I'm tired of it. I refuse to do it again. So he gets in the boat and he leaves. And leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. Matthew's account is a little different. Before heading to the other side of the sea, he records Jesus rebuking the Pharisees. He says to him, in a sense, you can look at the sky and you can discern the weather, but when I'm healing blind people right in front of you, you can't put two and two together. They can't tell what's going on. He says, an evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign, and a sign will not be given except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. Of course, the sign of Jonah He's referring to his burial for three days. And Matthew has Jesus leaving too. Before we move on, though, we have to understand, Jesus is not being petty. He's not taking his ball and going home. Okay? He's not frustrated that he can't win the argument or anything like that. He's, he's actually showing great wisdom because this was a lose-lose situation from the very beginning. And the Pharisees knew it. If he goes ahead and he whips up some type of miracle, say he conjures a hurricane, or he, or he calls down lightning from heaven, he gives in to their demands, he does something huge, something apocalyptic, something that shows God's power, well, it would only lead to his own inevitable rise as some powerful king. And that is the exact opposite of what Jesus has taught about his kingdom. This would actually paint him as a liar. This would make him contradicting himself, something God does not do. It would actually make him appear in their eyes as though he were a minion of the devil. Which again is what they've been saying for some time. He's possessed by Beelzebul. He casts out demons by the ruler of demons. And if you remember, Jesus tells them at one point, they are like their father the devil, the father of lies. And they would be able to turn that around on him. Ah, but you're lying because you show us your power. You clearly want to be some great king. And if he doesn't do the miracle, well, clearly they can walk away and they can say he isn't who he says he is. He's only good for a few healings and some snarky debate. That's all he is. You see, in their core, their demand for a sign came from a different vision for the kingdom. A different vision of what the Messiah should be. 
The signs he's given should be enough. So it tells us their vision of the coming Messiah and what he would do and what he'd be like are vastly different from the reality. So Jesus says, I know what you're doing and I'm not going to do this. I know why you're doing it. I'm not going to fall into your trap. So he leaves. He goes to the other side of the lake, this other side of the sea. And likely as he's getting into the boat, the Pharisees are high-fiving each other, thinking they've done something great while they continue to rot spiritually from the inside out. Their vision was blurred. Their focus was blinded. That's what kept them Pharisees and didn't allow them to become disciples. Jesus was not who they wanted him to be, and they would not follow who he truly, who he truly was. A true disciple of Christ wants their vision, their focus, the same as his, not bending his will to ours, but our will towards his. Our lives, our focus become his will, his Focus, not the other way around. Or we don't understand his compassion when he provides it. And we certainly don't participate when it's poured out because we fail to see it for what it truly is. The next thing we should see as we travel through this passage is that our main focus should be on Christ and not on what we don't have. Uh, goes on, says, And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Excuse me, I have a cough drop in my mouth. Leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Verses 14 and 15. If you recall, they had a lot of bread left over. Seven large baskets full of bread and fish. So either they've eaten a lot of that bread themselves, maybe they were really hungry and they just went through it themselves as the disciples, maybe they've given it away to feed others, maybe a little bit of both. These are the things that commentators like to argue about, what they really like to get into. Could be they unloaded the seven baskets full of food and in their rush to leave the the Pharisees, they forgotten to put them back on the boat. But one thing is for sure, there's one loaf of bread left. Many people agree that that one loaf is significant, that it's really a reminder to the disciples that they have the only bread they need, the bread of life in the boat with them. And that was sufficient. Last week, I mentioned this portion of John, uh, John's gospel, John chapter 6. It's worth reading again. The crowd from the 5,000 goes to find Jesus. They go to seek him out. And, and really, Jesus kind of scolds them. He says, you just want me because you want breakfast. You want me to provide more food for you. Not because you saw the signs and you know who I am, but because you just want more food. So the crowd says, well, are you going to give us manna from heaven like Moses did? And Jesus replies, he says, I am the manna from heaven. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But then we come to the disciples here in Mark, and they have this one, I imagine it's a soggy piece of bread. It's been in the boat, right? And they're depressed. They're worried. They're upset. But more importantly, they have the bread of life with them on that ship. And this is why Jesus begins to caution them concerning leaven of Pharisees and Herod. You know, in, in Scripture, leaven or yeast is it's often a symbol of evil in Scripture because only a small amount is necessary to make a loaf of bread. So, so if you have bad leaven, bad yeast, it would have a strong influence over the rest of the loaf. 
Paul uses this illustration in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened for Christ. Our Passover lamb also was sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice or wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He does it again in Galatians 5.9. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. The leaven of the Pharisees was referring to their desire to have from God some kind of validation for Christ's actions. But Matthew clarifies, he also says it has something to do with their teaching. Then they understood that he did not say to be aware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Not just their teaching, but their hypocrisy. Jesus calls them out for this before too, back in Luke 12. He began saying to his disciples first, be on your guard for the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So they're teaching their their hypocrisy, but then he, he, all, he adds Herod. He also says Herod's leaven, and Herod wasn't there. Herod wasn't a part of this, this discussion, this interaction. Why, why would Jesus bring him up? Well, if you recall, if you know your Gospels, in Luke 23, Herod sees Jesus. He rejoices. This is what Luke says, Luke 23, 8. For he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. But Herod's not requested that just yet. So maybe Jesus is referring to something else. Something else Herod was known for. Herod wanted the praise of men. He wanted to satisfy people before he could satisfy God. Herod was known to use religion to bolster his power over other people. Something we also see in the Pharisees. Of course, as a hypocrite himself, Herod had no real qualms about setting religion aside when it came to dealing with people who stood up to him. When John the Baptist, for instance, questions his ethics back in chapter 6. Unless we forget the, the Pharisees had become allies with the Herodians. Back in Mark 3, 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately began taking counsel together with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. So Jesus is warning the disciples about hypocrisy. He's warning them about corruption, about immoral conduct. He's warning them about bad teaching, which actually infests a believer's life. And once it's taken hold, it's very hard to uproot that or remove that, just like it's hard to remove yeast or leaven from a loaf of bread. Even a little of that leaven ruins the whole lump of bread. But the disciples, they misunderstand this. Their focus is once again on what they don't have rather than who they do have. It becomes our focus. That happens to us all the time, doesn't it? Lord, I don't have this. I need this. Sometimes God just whispers back, am I not enough for you? And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread, verse 16. Now the word discuss here is, is fascinating. It's actually one of those things in Greek that when you study it, you're like, Oh, this is, hmm. It's where we get our English word dialogue. It's dialogazanto, which is fun to say too. If you want, I'll write it out for you sometime. You can go home, dialogazanto. Fun word. But really, it's a word that escalates itself in meaning. 
See, what it begins, is, it, it, it suggests that they begin to think about the bread. Then they begin to wonder about the bread. Then they begin to talk about the bread until finally they're arguing and they're debating about the bread. How much of their focus has been on the lack of bread in this scenario? We can understand why Jesus is probably getting a little irritated with them, a little frustrated with them. We see that in our next passage. But the point is their focus has been shaken. Maybe, maybe they thought as they're discussing this, they thought, well, hey, hey, we've ran out of bread, but here's the deal. Okay, when we hit the shore, nobody say anything, all right? And when we hit the shore, Peter, you and Judas, because we don't really trust that guy, you guys go get some bread, and, and we'll just, we won't say anything about it. He's got the money. Peter, just go with him and do this, right? Maybe, maybe they were just sitting there thinking, uh, you know, actually, I think Thaddeus was supposed to get the bread. And he says, I wasn't supposed to do it. I thought Philip had it. Well, I thought Thomas had it. And it just goes around and around. And now they're arguing about the bread. They're so focused on that. They forgot the plan with Peter and Judas going to replace it. They, They've just become so enamored with what they don't have. In fact, you guys remember the, the comic strip, The Family Circus? It wasn't really a strip. It was just a circle, and it had these little cute sayings the kids would say. And in there, if the kids got in trouble and the mom said, who did this? There was a little ghost named Ida No, and there was another one called Not Me. The disciples are trying to find their Ida No. Right? They're trying to find an excuse. They're If you think about it, just put yourself in that boat for a moment. Jesus just got done dealing with the Pharisees. He was sighing. He was groaning in in agony over them. And and he's fed up with them. And we just got in the boat and we're leaving. And now he's talking to us about leaven and about yeast. Well, he clearly knows something is up with the bread, right? The one thing we realize we don't have that much of, he's talking about it. Don't think they would have a guilty conscience? Don't they have a right to be a little nervous or self-conscious? You see, this is what happens when our focus is inward on ourselves, on the world around us, the things we're lacking versus who is in the boat with us when our focus is inward and not upward. And remember, please, they're on the Sea of Galilee. This is a place that is known for storms to rise up at a moment's notice, for the wind to get violent. In fact, we've seen them experience this very thing when Jesus calms the storm, when he walks on the water. And this could happen at any second. And yet, they're concerned about the one loaf of bread they do have and what they don't have to go with it. We've seen Jesus feed thousands of people with very little. And yet, they're sitting in that boat with one loaf of bread. Maybe they were thinking, is he going to let us starve? We've only got one loaf. What could he possibly do with one loaf? He'd already told them back in Matthew 6. So this is in the timeline past. He's told them, do not worry then, saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And the problem is the disciples aren't seeking those things. They've lost their focus. Their hearts are hardened. They've been so close to Jesus. They've been walking through Gentile territory for the past six to eight months, just them and Jesus, and yet somehow they've missed who he is. They've forgotten. They've, gotten, they've lost the plot. They've lost track of it all. 
Thing is, we could easily do that as well. Our focus can become blurry. We can lose sight of who Christ truly is. We lose our focus if it's not on him. If we do not remain disciples, the believing learner, the learning believer that we're called to be. If our focus is on him, we will become I'm sorry, if our focus is not on him, we will easily become more enamored with the things we don't have, the things we wish we had versus who we do have. And we'll never act in the compassion of Christ. Finally, we have to keep our eyes fixed on Christ if we're to know Christ's compassionate provision. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Verse 17, Jesus begins a rebuke, a sharp rebuke of the disciples here. And if you notice, it all comes by asking questions. They're rhetorical questions. He never outright condemns. He never makes a statement. He never makes an accusation. His questions are meant to expose what's inside each individual heart. Not to expose it to everyone around them, but to make them think, as individuals, have they hardened their heart? Have they lost their focus? Why, are you, why am I worried about the bread? Each one of them is going to feel the weight of conviction, and it's from there they're going to begin to regain their focus on Christ, who He truly is. The first thing He asked them is, why do you discuss the fact you have no bread? And again, this was the escalation of their minds to their mouth, right? Jesus is not condemning their talk. He's He's rebuking the intentions of their heart. He's condemning their own spiritual blindness, their own lack of understanding. <clears throat> He's asked them similar questions before. Back in chapter 4, he asked them if they didn't understand parables. Later in the, the middle of the storm, he asked them if they lacked faith. Next, he asked, do you not perceive or understand? Now, this is starting to get hurtful, Jesus. The Greek word Mark uses is noyete, and it means to Basically, have you lost your insight, your ability to reflect upon truth? It could possibly be that Jesus is saying, do you not yet observe the truth? Do you not see what has been made plain right in front of you? The next word he uses is suniete, which simply means do you not realize what is happening? These would have been sharp words, almost hurtful words to the disciples, but they're words they have to hear. I said this last week, so often we don't, like to hear words of rebuke or words of condemnation, but sometimes it's what we need to get us on the right track. We definitely don't like to hear it when we've placed ourselves under someone else's authority to be subject to their correction when it's needed. Paul tells Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, but he also says reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and teaching. And it's not fun receiving a rebuke. It's not fun giving it either. But there's a time and there's a place for it. And when you're coming from a place of authority, Paul says to do it with great patience and with teaching. Where do we see that? Probably in Jesus, because I imagine Jesus is very frustrated at this point. In fact, his words tell us he is. And don't believe for one second that Jesus does this entire rebuke, that he he is saying this and getting pleasure from it, because he's not. In fact, I imagine he's saying this with tears in his eyes, but the disciples have to get this point. They have to understand They must trust Him. They must focus on Him. They have to understand who He is if they're to carry on His ministry once He's ascended to the Father. And that clock is ticking faster and faster as we tread through the second half of Mark's Gospel. 
His words probably stung, and they're only going to get harsher. Imagine they crack like a whip against the disciple's heart. Do you have a hardened heart, he asks. And the unspoken answer is, yes, yes, I do. But it shouldn't be, and I know I'm wrong for it. We as the readers of Mark, we've heard the narration that they they do have hardened hearts, for they had not gained any insight about the loaves, but their heart was hardened. And here, we're talking about the loaves again and the hardness of their heart. You have to remember, hardness of heart is more than thickness of skull. It refers to the inability to understand because they have a rebellious attitude, being obstinate like the Pharisees, unresponsive to the truth. In Hebrews 3.8, it says, Do not harden your hearts, as when they provoke me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. And it's again referring to the waters of Meribah. Jesus is warning them, do not let the leaven of the Pharisees contaminate you. Only now they're seeing it already has. So he continues, and if we understand this, we might flinch as we read this passage, verses 18 through 20. Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of bread? How many full of broken pieces you picked up? And they said to him, twelve. When I broke seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you have? And they said to him, seven. And I imagine each time they answered, it was softly, quietly. As someone who's under discipline. See, Jesus is, he's quoting from the Old Testament. He's referring to two Old Testament passages, two Old Testament prophets. And if the, if the disciples understand this, if they connect the dots to what he's referring to, this will hurt. It will sting. Jeremiah 5.21 is a rebuke of those not just with hard hearts, but simple minds. And it reads, Now hear this, O people, who are simple-minded fools and without a heart of wisdom, who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. If they believe he's referencing Ezekiel 12.2, they might think he's about ready to kick them out of the group because it's referencing the exile. Son of man, you live in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see but do not see, ears to hear but do not hear, for they're a rebellious house. Neither one of those would be what the disciples want to hear. He's basically saying to them, are you simple-minded? Do you want to leave? Jesus is not playing around. And yet I think in a moment, he kind of slows down. And he says, you remember the bread for the 5,000? How many baskets did you have left? And they reply, 12. Okay, when I fed the 4,000, how many large baskets did you have left? And they tell him, seven. The implication is what Jesus is saying to them is, do you really think I'm worried about bread? I'm worried about your heart. You think I'm worried about what we don't have? I'm worried about what you guys are going to do with my story when I'm gone. You think I'm really worried about what the Pharisees say to me or what people think about me? No, I'm worried about what you think about me, where your focus is at. Are you in step with me? You understand, he designated them apostles back in chapter 3, but he's questioning now, do you still have the heart of a disciple? Do you still learn? And for us as readers, we have to pause and we have to say, do we still want to learn? Is my heart still malleable? Is my mind still open to, to learning from Scripture, from what he has to say? Do they get what he's truly concerned about? 
Is their focus the same as His? Because if it's not, their compassion will not be the same as His. Their mission won't be the same as His. Their teaching, their preaching won't be His. In fact, they'd no longer be a disciple at all. They'd be something else, something contaminated by the level, the leaven of the Pharisees and by Herod. And that's not what He wants for them. That's not what He wants for us. That's why He asked them that last question. He was saying to them, Do you not yet understand? Jesus, in a sense, is he's repeating the same question he asked back in verse 17. The haunting fact is, Mark doesn't give us an answer. The disciples just sit in silence because they don't understand. Or maybe they do, but they're not confident enough to give any kind of answer. In the entire, sorry, in the entire Gospel of Mark, this is the harshest rebuke the disciples get from, from Jesus. It's the most severe he becomes with the disciples. He almost relentlessly hits them with question after question after heart-piercing question. Matthew tells us he does answer the question. He says, then they understood. Then they finally got it. Jesus had to be harsh. He had to give them a severe rebuke. But he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But do they understand the deeper meaning? Do they understand who it is who's talking to them? Do they get who is in the boat with them? It wasn't all that long ago in Mark 4.41. They asked one another, Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey them, obey him. And I imagine after this conversation, they have a similar com- they have a similar conversation amongst themselves. Who does this guy think he is? Who is he? That he talks to us like this. Well, somebody probably says, He's our teacher. He's the Messiah. And soon we're going to see that answer come out but it's going to take the healing of a blind man for their focus to be adjusted. He demonstrates his compassion, his provision, and they begin to truly understand who he is and what he's been trying to teach them. And that'll be our our message next week. But the question becomes, and I'm going to close with this, do we understand it? Do we grasp this? Is our focus truly on Christ always, or do we let ourselves drift? Do we become focused on a, a Jesus that he's not? Or do we become focused on the things we don't have? Are we looking at the storm versus who we have in our boat? Are we looking at the wind and the waves versus the one who controls the wind and the waves? Are we looking at the crowd and we're saying, how can we possibly feed them? Are we looking at the lame, the sick, the deaf, the blind, and asking, is he still the same God who heals them? Because the answer is, yes, he is still the the same God. He does not change. Some churches try so many things to reach people that, Their methods become so like the world, soon the church becomes like the world, infected by its leaven. That's not what the disciples are to do. That's not what the church is to do. I love the way Martin Lloyd-Jones says it. God has not changed. Man has not changed. So the mission has not changed. Preach the word. Focus on Christ. Share his compassion with the world around us. Talk about him. Share him. That's the greatest act of compassion you can do for somebody is tell them about Jesus. We overcomplicate it far too often. You guys have all heard me say this. Your life imitates your theology. What you believe about Jesus reflects in the rest of your life. We see it in the disciples in our text. If they understood who Jesus was, they wouldn't get focused on a soggy piece of bread. They'd be focused on the bread of life. And that's what we should do. 
This morning, if you're here and you're saying, I've lost my focus, or I need to regain my focus, I would invite you to pray. Come to the front, pray where you're at. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to close in prayer. Like I said, we do have a meal downstairs. We'll dismiss in a word of prayer. If you'd like prayer, we're going to have our prayer team at the front. But Father God, we just ask you today to tenderize our hearts. The truth is someday we're going to stand before Christ and either we'll receive a rebuke for what we've done with the message or we will receive, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, I pray we're faithful. I pray as a church we are faithful in keeping our focus on Christ. Sharing you, loving you, spreading your gospel. As I said last week, this is a place people know they can come and receive the word of God. And so today I pray that they receive that. And Lord, it is kind of a, a harsh rebuke, but we, we also need that at times because your word tells us you discipline those you love. And so if anyone's feeling convicted today, I pray they, they receive that. That they understand God has his reasons for these things. You, you have your reasons for these things. And Father, most of all, I pray you empower us to keep our eyes on Jesus, to keep our eyes on your Son. And that when others ask us for the joy we have, the hope we have, or just when the opportunity comes for us to talk about you, I pray you help us to recognize it and to go all in. For your glory and for the building of your kingdom, Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.